All right, the show's coming up here in a moment. Ben Standig will be our guest, and I'll certainly discuss the passing of Coach Thompson uh, here on the show today as well. Quick word for Window Nation, the titled sponsor of this podcast today. Window Nation's got a huge savings opportunity right now, 50% off all style windows, plus zero money down, zero payments, and zero interest for two full years. Window Nation uh, has serviced over 100,000 homeowners, including yours truly and friends and listeners and family members. They're the best. If you've been thinking about windows, you're crazy not to call Window Nation first at 866-90-NATION or go to windownation.com. Mention my name. You get a free estimate. That means there's no risk at all. And if you decide to move forward with Window Nation, you'll get 50% off all windows right now with nothing down, no payments, no interest for two full years. 866-90-NATION or go online to set up an in-home estimate or a virtual quote at windownation.com and tell them that I sent you. You want it. You need it. It's what everyone's talking about. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Now, here's Kevin. Ben Standig will join us in a few minutes. We'll get caught up on everything that happened with the football team over the weekend and get Ben's guesses on the roster as we are now less than two weeks away from opening day. Amazing. Two weeks from today, we'll be doing a recap of the opening game against the Philadelphia Eagles. I'm going to spend the first part of the show today talking about Coach John Thompson, who passed away last night at the age of 78 years old. A giant in coaching, a giant in life, and such an interesting person and influential person to be around. And I was lucky enough to be around him for a short period of time when he was working in radio at 980. Um, It wasn't a lot of time that I spent. Guys like Doc Walker and Brian Mitchell and Al Koken and and C.J. Chris Johnson, who produced him for all those years. Chuck Sapienza, who was the program director and also produced coach for a few years there. Um, they spent, you know, every single day and lots of conversations with him. But for the rest of us that worked at the radio station, we were lucky to have been there um, when he was there. His show for many years followed the show that I did with Tommy in middays. Tommy and I did the sports fix from 12 to 2. And then Coach would come in with Doc and Brian or or Al and, and, and Doc, um, Al Koken and Doc, and would follow up that show from 2 to 4. Man, I think about it, a two-hour radio. Show that was it. It was so easy. Um, three hours is is probably the perfect amount of time. Four hours. I've done four hours before as well. Um, that can get a bit uh, a bit long. But back then the lineup we we were you know an affiliate of ESPN Radio, so we ran Mike and Mike in the morning from six to ten. Except on Mondays following you know Redskin games, I would host Monday morning quarterback with Andy Poland uh, from six to ten during those uh, during those years. Then Tony's radio show would go. 10 to 12, which by the way, I was a part of that radio show. So I would get in, you know, at about eight, eight fifteen, cause that show got recorded. Then Tommy and I did our show from 12 to two, then coach's show followed from two to four, but there was always, you know, a hello as he was entering the studio and I was exiting as Tommy and I were exiting many times. However, you know, there was a conversation, often a debate, sometimes, you know, a healthy, if not heated argument, Um, And I'm going to share some of those stories with you um, in a moment, the personal stories that I have, because on days like today, it's obviously about the person and reflecting on their life. And in this particular case, not only his life, but his his brilliant um, and very influential 
coaching career, but you also want some stories interspersed that are personal. I mean, I had a chance to spend some time and work in the same building with him for, you know, about eight, nine years. Um, And uh, there were several, um, several moments in conversations that I will never forget. But, you know, first for those that uh, most of you are familiar with this career, but it really was an amazing, you know, basketball coaching career. I mean, you know, first of all, he grew up in this area, grew up as a D.C. native, um, went to Archbishop Carroll in, in Northeast and participated um, as a key starter on one of the greatest, if not the greatest, high school basketball teams in high school basketball history. I think some of you know this, but, you know, this city for a long period of time, you know, before it ended up with an NBA team, an NHL team, a Major League Baseball team, an NFL team. Um, you know, when he was in high school and then in college, he went to the uh, he went to Providence um, before coming back, uh, before going to the NBA and then coming back and coaching at St. Anthony's first uh, in high school and then taking the Georgetown job in 72. But, you know, the, the conversations that I've had with my father and, you know, my uncle over the years and my aunt over the years and friends, you know, and, uh, and you know, other older people over the years is, you know, they always remind me that, you know, in the 1950s and 60s in particular, high school basketball was huge in this city. It was front page sports section Washington Post big. You know, there was the football team, there were the Senators, um, but there wasn't an NBA team. Uh, Maryland hadn't yet become, you know, what they would become under left. Drizel in the early 70s. Uh, Thompson, you know, was first playing in the NBA with the Celtics, backing up Bill Russell and winning two championship rings, Red Auerbach being one of his all-time influences in life. Um, and uh, but, but high school basketball, it, basketball in general, has always been so big in this city. And, and I think many of you know that, but n- not all of you understand that. Um, it is still to this day one of the top two or three high school basketball areas in the country. There is no doubt about it. Most of you uh, know this. For those that don't, Prince George's County has more NBA players from PG County than any other county in the country. They did a documentary on it recently. It's in the water, it was titled. It was a Kevin Durant production company um, uh, documentary. And uh, it's just been such a phenomenal youth and high school basketball area for so long. And you know, with the NBA team having had many more down years than good years, college basketball's always been more popular than the NBA in this town. Maryland and Georgetown in particular, having both been national championship teams and, you know, in powerhouses at any given time. And of course, Georgetown came from nowhere with Coach building up that program. You know, he played on that Carroll team, the Carroll teams of the late 50s into 1960, I think was his final year in high school, I believe. I believe that's tr- uh, right, um, and uh, and they are considered still by those that really know high school basketball. The Archbishop Carroll teams, coached by Bob Dwyer, um, in the nineteen late nineteen fifties with John Thompson and Monk Malloy and Tom Hoover. 
um, and um, George Leftwich and John Austin are considered considered to be the greatest. That team is considered. It lost one time in three years. Uh, it's considered to be the greatest high school team in high school basketball history. Um, and Dematha had a lot of really good teams, and you know, and then in recent years, some of these basketball factory schools, whether it's Oak Hill or others, had great teams. But that Carroll team, most people will tell you, um, was the greatest high school team ever assembled. Big John was was a part of that team. Went to Providence, played with the Celtics, as I mentioned, um, and then um, uh, and then uh, got into coaching. You know, he had a couple of years there. Uh, in, in, with the Celtics um, and won two rings, backed up Bill Russell, who remains to this day and was a good friend of coaches. Um, and then in 1966, he started coaching high school basketball at St. Anthony's in D.C. and turned them into a power, a local powerhouse. And there was a rivalry with Morgan Wooten in DeMatha that was very intense. Um, I can remember doing these lunches with legend shows that Tommy and I did together. We did, I don't know, a dozen to a dozen and a half or so of these shows. We would uh, we would do it at Morton's on Connecticut Avenue downtown, sell tickets to it. And my most, I, I mean, I've got three or four that are the most memorable, certainly doing it with Coach. And Tommy wasn't there that day, but I got to sit there for two hours with Coach Thompson. And it was such a thrill. And it was my favorite, you know, among my two or three favorite ones. I, I, I'd have to say it was my favorite, although the lefty one was the most fun I've ever had. Um, and Gary's was great. And doing it with Wilbon and and Jim Palmer and 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 Sonny was phenomenal. Tommy and I loved the the lunch with a legend that we did with with Sonny, which was probably only four or five years ago. Um, but anyway, um, I, I'll never forget doing one with Morgan Wooten. And when we got done the next day, when I walked out of the studio after the next day's show, there was Coach waiting for me. And he, he MF'd me one upside, one the other, um, for not knowing some things about Morgan Wooten. He, they had a tremendous rivalry. And he, would, he, he kept saying, that story he told you about, you know, the game that we were going to play at Howard that got moved to Cole Fieldhouse, that was bullshit. And then he got into, you know, Morgan had claimed that he was one of the first uh, people to figure out that fouling at the end of the game was the only way to get the ball back and making people shoot free throws. And, you know, Coach and Morgan Wooten had a tremendous rivalry, personal rivalry, um, from his days at St. Anthony's. And I don't know if a DeMatha player ever went to Georgetown. I don't know if that's uh, – maybe one or two, but not 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 many, if, if any. Um but then he went to Georgetown, and he took a team that was 3-23 in 1971, and he turned this elite, upper-tier um, academic institu- institution that had had primarily white basketball teams, and John Thompson gets hired, and he comes in, and he turns this thing around, and he turned it around in a hurry. His first two years, he goes, he goes 12 and 14. Second year, he's 500. Okay, so from 3 and 23 the year before he got there, 12, 12 and 14, 13 and 13. And then he's in the NCAA tournament in the 74 75 season. I mean, amazing. Um, he, before uh, Georgetown, 
joined the Big East. He was good friends with Dave Gavitt, the founder of the Big East, and obviously Georgetown and John Thompson's presence at that point and then in the nineteen seventy nine going into the seventy nine eighty season was paramount to the Big East. The Hoyas had gone to three of five NCAA tournaments. Um, they were winning more than twenty games a year with Coach, who had totally turned that program around with two key uh, early recruits, uh, Craig Shelton and John Bebe Dern from Dunbar. Um, he created that Dunbar connection in D.C. Then he created that Dunbar connection in Baltimore. Bob Wade's teams in Baltimore with, you know, obviously David Wingate and Reggie Williams. Um, uh, you know, it, C.J. was reminding me of the New Orleans recruiting connection the, that he had. So many players in that pipeline from Louisiana. But um, when they joined the Big East and they, as a founding member of the Big East, the Big East became just an incredible brand in sports. You know, college basketball was in its heydays in the 80s. And the Big East, it was the ACC and the Big East. I mean, the Big Ten was good. Don't get me wrong, had great years. Um, but it was, you know, the battle. Who's better, the Big East this year or the ACC this year? Um, and, you know, in this area, we had the ACC with Maryland and Lefty Drizel and then eventually Gary Williams and Georgetown had John Thompson. And it was the two leagues, you know, it was it, it was it was wild because D.C. was the only market really for, you know, the, the years that John Thompson was in the Big East that had both a Big East and an ACC program at the height. You could argue the height of college basketball was the 80s. I mean, the popularity of the sport was really, you know, almost second to the NFL, you know, at that point. Um, it, it was massive. The tournament became a must-watch event, but college basketball in the regular season was super popular. And Georgetown became, you know, really when they recruited Patrick Ewing prior to the 81-82 season and then went to the finals three out of four years that Patrick was there winning a national championship in 1984, Georgetown became pretty much the brand. You know, I mean, there was North Carolina and Duke and Kansas and UCLA and Kentucky, and then there was Georgetown. And Georgetown was, you know, Coach Thompson. I mean, you've ne- I mean, there are very few universities with sports programs where you say one person's responsible for why most people know about that university, and that's Georgetown and John Thompson. Now, everybody, a, a lot of people obviously knew of Georgetown um, as the incredible academic institution in D.C., um, but John Thompson made Georgetown a household name for so many more. Um, and became really the the most uh, famous and most important person in the you know in the promotion of that university, and it, it became you know a very anti-establishment, almost counterculture brand. But it was but it had t- tremendous crossover. It wasn't just African Americans or black you know young black people that loved Georgetown. I, I had so many friends that loved Georgetown that were white. Um, they were rough and tumble, the teams that he coached at Georgetown. It's so, I hated Georgetown as a born and raised Maryland fan in a Maryland family. You know, and if you were hardcore Maryland, it was tough to root for Georgetown. It was a rivalry, even though they didn't play for 13 years during 1980 to 1993 because of this tremendous, you know, um, you know, rivalry between, even though there was respect between Lefty Drizel and John Thompson. But 
Um, You know, I couldn't stand Georgetown. Maryland was, you know, pretty much the heavyweight program through the 70s and then into the early 80s. And then Georgetown beat Maryland in the Sweet 16 at the Spectrum in 1980 in Philadelphia. And it was part of of, of a year in which they played twice and Georgetown won twice. And then Georgetown stopped playing Maryland. And Lefty had played John all the way up until that point. He'd always given him the opportunity to play him. Maryland was the heavyweight in the 70s in this area. Maryland was a top 10 program in the 70s. And um, Georgetown beat him in the Sweet 16 after a, a game early that year at the Armory uh, against Maryland, a game that's very famous for Lefty and John getting into a verbal altercation at the scores table um, where they MF'd each other. And um, they, st- they, they st- that was it. That series ended. Um, on that night at the Armory, Georgetown won the game. Buck Williams didn't play in the game. But what happened was the NCAA tournament later that spring seeded Maryland second and Georgetown third in the Eastern region. And they played in a Sweet 16 game in one of the most hyped local sporting events. That you'll, if, if you were alive or around for that, you'll remember the buildup from, you know, the weekend until the Sweet 16 game, which was either on a Thursday or Friday night, was tremendous locally. Um, Maryland was the favorite. They thought, you know, most people thought they were the higher seeded team. Most people thought, well, that early game that they lost to Georgetown, Buck Williams didn't play in it. Uh, but Georgetown won the game and really won the game handily. And, that year, they they went on, um, ironically, their next game was an Elite Eight game against Lute Olson, who just passed away the other day. Lute Olson was coaching Iowa at the time, and Iowa beat Georgetown by a point in the Elite Eight game uh, in the 1980 Elite Eight. And then, you know, then it was two years later, Patrick arrives, and Georgetown ends up winning the national championship in 84, losing to North Carolina in 82 on a shot by Michael Jordan as a freshman in the Superdome. And then they lost that famous game where uh, Villanova shot 77% from the floor, you know, like 90% in the second half and shocked Georgetown uh, in, that, uh, in, in that 1985 final, 66-64. What's really interesting, and I mentioned I didn't like Georgetown as a Maryland fan in the 80s, um, but I loved watching them play. And I loved the physical play of the Big East. And Georgetown and John Thompson did something that real very few teams were doing, but nobody did what they did the way they did it. They full court pressed you, and they were physical, and they were swarming, and they were relentless, and teams weren't used to that. And they had talent. Um, and they had waves of defensive players. Coach, you know, recruited great defense. He'd put, you know, long arm guys like Billy Martin on the inbounds pass, and then the ball would come in, and they'd swarm it and pressure it, and they would kill people. I mean, you know, I, he made a comment once. CJ was telling me on the radio this morning, and I don't remember this comment, but he made a comment that basically the intimidation factor of them defensively with their pressure was basically a five point lead to begin a game. Now, I think, you know, I, I, and I mentioned this earlier in, in the morning. I think the reason Villanova beat him in the, in the 85 final is because, you know, the teams that got used to Georgetown style, the Big East teams, you know, I don't think anybody else in the country but a Big East team beats Georgetown in 85. You know, they were used to it. They knew what was coming. They had played against it. You know, St. John's was in that final four too. Georgetown beat St. John's in the semis um, and then beat Vill- and then lost to Villanova in the final. Um, but uh, the style of play and the intimidation factor in their play 
um, created an incredible brand. You know, there was the Hoya paranoia thing where, you know, they, they were really difficult with the media. <laughs> Big John was not media friendly, but those that he had a relationship with in the media, you know, we're talking and I'm listening to a lot of the stories that various people like Stephen A. Smith and Michael Wilbon and others are, are, are telling and you know, those that he had a relationship with, he was fine. But, you know, you talk about guarded, you talk about secretive, you talk about not giving away anything competitively. I mean, that was Georgetown basketball. And he was just an incredible uh, figure overseeing that program. 26 and a half seasons. He retired um, early in the 99, uh, 98, 99 season, 596 wins, 20 times out of 26 seasons, full seasons in the tournament. All right. Went to the final four um, three times, lost uh, two NCAA finals after being in three uh, actual finals. He went to the Elite Eight, um, you know, in that 80 year, uh, lost to Lute Olson. They lost in 87 to. was that uh, the Providence team? I think that was the Providence team in 87. And then in 89, lost to Shashevsky and Duke in the Elite Eight. Um, and then got to the Elite Eight in 95, 96 with Iverson. Um, they, you know, so he was, I mean, the, the, the Georgetown was just, you know, every year in and year out, you know, uh, a threat to go deep into the tournament. Even in the six years where he wasn't in the NCAA tournament, four of those years were the NIT, and two of those were the NIT when the NIT was a big deal in the 70s. Um, but what a career um, uh, coaching. But I think the thing about uh, Coach Thompson as a coach, and you're hearing a lot of that today, is just the relationships and the mentoring and the educating and the taking care of and making these players after he promised those parents he would take care of them, making them his responsibility. And the graduation rate through the roof at Georgetown for his players and the opportunities that he gave these players and just all of the various videos and shots, so many with his his arm, you know, draped around one of his players, whether it was Allen Iverson or Patrick Ewing or Alonzo Mourning, or famously of Fred Brown after Fred Brown in the eighty two title game against North Carolina against his very close friend, uh, Dean Smith. He coached with Dean Smith on the seventy six Olympic team. He was Dean Smith's assistant coach. He and Dean were very tight um, and Dean Smith got his first title against Georgetown after Jordan hit that shot with 16 seconds to go and then Georgetown comes up and Fred Brown's the point guard and in the peripheral uh, in his periphery he picks up a body he thought it was a Georgetown player goes to throw it to him it's James Worthy and the game um, is over and Georgetown loses and he's got his arm around Fred Brown um, comforting him in that moment and then of course when they won it um, there was uh, a massive hug between Fred Brown and John Thompson two years later. Um, you know, coaching at Georgetown, you know, he was the king of giving people second chances. I mean, the, uh, Allen Iverson, um, uh, uh, Michael Graham, um, the, the list goes on and on and on. He really believed in, in second chances um, for players and um it was uh, he knew uh, he he had a way of communicating and relating to and was so smart and so thoughtful, but also so empathetic. You know, I I, I I'll, I'll talk I'll share some personal stories here w- with you in a moment. But I think one of the things that um, I think one of the things that was so important uh, about him was that he was just a tremendous leader, and leaders have this. 
gift of being able to communicate, and there was no doubt that he was a phenomenal communicator. He was a charismatic communicator in so many ways. You know, he was larger than life at six foot ten, um, but had this you know w- very warm way about him. But also, when he got angry, um, there was a lot of uh, th- there was no mistaking what he was, but what, what you know how he felt. But he was a great communicator. He had rules, and he very much lived by the law of sort of dictatorship like that was him you know he was um he he very much you know sort of fancied himself to be a dictator that was his management style but with that said he had you know great empathy which is so important in in a great leader um he had that in spades he really did um it was uh, it was great to be around him. Uh, it really was, um, and I'll share a couple of personal um, stories um, with you here in a moment. After um, I tell you about my bookie, um, my bookie right now is gearing up for football season, but you don't have to wait till football season because they're doing a great job right now with uh, hoops and with hockey and anything else that you're betting on. Um, they've got it. Uh, they got it figured out right now. So. Um, what I want you to do is I want you to go go to mybookie.ag. You're going to be looking for a spot to wager or a second spot to wager if you've already got a first spot um, that is reliable first and foremost, and that's what my bookie is. You're going to get fair point spreads. You're going to get fair money lines. You're going to get fair pricing, and you're going to get plenty of ways to bet. They've got futures, plenty of futures, plenty of prop bets. Um, you know, you're going to have some college football, a little bit of it this weekend. Certainly you've got the NBA playoffs, the NHL playoffs, major league baseball going on and uh, lots of other things, the derbies this coming weekend. Um, but when we get to the NFL season, you're going to want to sign up with MyBookie.ag, And right now they're going to offer you up to a thousand dollars in free play. After you sign up, they will double your first deposit up to $1,000. It's designed to add more excitement to the sports you love and the games you bet. From live betting to championship futures, every play you want to make is waiting at my bookie. It's simple. Make your picks, win big, collect your cash. Use my promo code, KevinDC. All right. Even if you've already got a place in which you're wagering, if you're looking for a second place, Right now, you can't beat the offer, right? They're going to double your first deposit up to $1,000 if you use my promo code, KevinDC. All right, a few um, personal stories that I want to share with you. I, you know, the guys that you really want to hear from on a day like today are Doc Walker and Brian Mitchell and Al Koken and CJ, who was on the radio show. The guys that really, CJ, almost a family member with the Thompsons. Um, but th- they really had the day to day. I was just lucky enough to sort of be there um, in the same building with him every day. But. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that uh, I think I connected with him on is I think he always appreciated that I wasn't, you know, making it as if I was something I wasn't when it came to being a college basketball fan. I made it very clear, you know, I didn't, I wasn't a Georgetown fan. I'm still to this day, not a Georgetown fan. I'm a John Thompson fan, but it took me a while to get there. But, um, I was a Maryland fan. And I remember one of the first conversations we had, he was like, he just said to me, he said, I know who you root for. 
And you made it very, very clear we are on opposite sides. And he just smiled and he said, no, I love your passion for it. And I'm glad you're not bullshitting and trying to bullshit me. And I said, well, I wouldn't do that. I said, I I love the way your teams played, but I was not a fan of Georgetown. And he said, and I wasn't a fan of Maryland or the ACC. Because you have to remember, the ACC was the Blue Blood Conference. The Big East was the upstart. Um, It was hard for them, you know, early on to get traction. And in the market, Maryland, by virtue of, first of all, Lefty building a power before uh, John had built a power at Georgetown, but really just the numbers alone, Maryland's got, you know, 30,000 undergrad and a lot of those alums are still in the in the area and Georgetown's alum base is all over the country and all over the world and didn't come from here necessarily um and and you know I think there was always that battle you know but coach always said I'm not building a a local program I'm building a national uh program um but I remember a couple of specific things um about coach I mean we got into several we had a bullpen area outside of the main studio where we would all you know many times hang out and and bullshit and eat and whatever and um, many times he and I would 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 have a conversation there occasionally it would happen in the studio but usually it was out in the bullpen and I remember I did one of my rants on you know Maryland should be playing Georgetown every year it's a rivalry that you know should be played not you know not played and um, I made all of my points on why it should be played and I walked out of the studio and he just looked at him he said he goes you're wrong and I said why am I wrong and he said when we played that game in 1993 at U.S. Air Arena which was the first time in 13 years that Maryland and Georgetown played it was a game that Russ Potts uh, the big promoter put together the made for television game um, the day after, the morning after Thanksgiving, actually, on a Friday in November, it was Gary Williams' first big win at Maryland. They they won on a Dwayne Simpkin shot in overtime, and I was there, and I was there with Scott Van Pelt, my brother, and a few, a few others, I think it was. I will never forget that day. It was one of the most exciting wins for Maryland because it had been several years since they were really in the limelight. You know, they're coming off probation, the whole thing. And he said, when we played that game, he said it wasn't even sold out. And that was the basis for him saying that it wasn't worth it, that there wasn't, you know, as as big of a market for Maryland Georgetown um, uh, every year as I thought there was. And I said, Coach, I said, that game was played at an, uh, you know, the day after Thanksgiving at 11 a.m. in the morning. Maryland was coming off probation and a year in which they went 2-14 and 14 in the ACC. Now, it was Joe Smith and Keith Booth's first game. Nobody knew what Joe Smith was going to become. Um, and it wasn't sold out. That's true. But the Capitol Center held 19,035, something like that. And there were about 17,900. You know, it was like maybe 1,400 or something like that, you know, 1,100 short of a sellout. And I said, and that was on a Friday morning at 11 a.m. I said, don't tell me that if this game isn't played on a Saturday night, you know, the Saturday where Army plays Navy in college football in early December and play it one year at Cole and play it one year down at Verizon Center, that we won't, you split the tickets if you want to. Um, but it's sold out every year and it's a national TV deal. And he said, 
He goes, ah, y- y- you could tell he never wanted that game. Remember the way he scheduled early in the year when he was the coach. You know, St. Leo's and St. Francis and Hawaii Hilo and all those, you know, that, that, that non-conference schedule that used to get mocked. But I, I remember that. He loved very often my takes on Mondays after Skins games. Um, but he also... You know, he would also make fun of me for all of the clock management stuff when I would get, you know, knee deep into the minutia of, you know, a Jay Gruden clock management gaffe. And he would just, I'll never forget when he said to me, he says, and trust me, this was a term of endearment, but he would refer to, you know, people at times as MFers. He would say it, you know, you're a motherfucker. motherfucker." And um, and I'll never forget, he said, MFer. You'd crumble under the pressure if you, you know, you got the answers right now. It's easy. But if you were on that sideline and we laughed and laughed and I said, no, I don't think so. I think I'd do it. And Doc was laughing. But anyway, um, he loved that I was a coach because he would say to me every once in a while, he would say, the reason I love listening to you and not some of the others is because you're out there doing it. I remember he would say that. You're out there coaching. You know what you're talking about. Um, there were, I mentioned the lunch with a legend that we did with him. That was a thrill. But the biggest thrill for me came outside of um, the studios where we did have many you know, debates and, and discussions um, in that bullpen. But I'll never forget, I was coaching... I think it was my it was my younger son's team, um, and we were coaching at the old Silver Spring Boys and Girls Club in Silver Spring, right off there, uh, uh, right out there off Forest Glen Road, um, off the Beltway, and um, and that was a great place. Uh, some of you may remember it. Um, it, it really competitive um, weekend fall basketball league fall and spring actually it was you know it was a supplement to winter and those that were playing high level AAU would would leave you know in the spring sometimes but would be back there with another team and we played in the fall definitely um Saturday mornings Sunday mornings it was just a great atmosphere you know hamburgers and hot dogs being cooked early in the morning and and um a small gym but you know um uh, a small uh, set of stands to sit in and um, I'll never forget one of those mornings. And it turned out that I probably coached um, a couple of times with him. But the first time with him there. But the first time, it was probably like a Saturday or Sunday morning in the fall. And we're out there. And the team I'm coaching, we're going through warm-ups. And then I see Coach walk into the building. And I was in, in a discussion with somebody. And um, I didn't have a chance to go over and say hello to him. And then I realized that he was there to see his son Ronnie's kid play. Ronnie had a son who, good athlete. Um, uh, and at that point, Ronnie's son, I think was like a year younger, but was playing up um, on a team. And uh, anyway, the game starts. We get to halftime. And I do remember what happened in that game. We, we, we won the game. And we won the game, I think, pretty handily. Um, and uh, we're at halftime, and I'm sitting there. I got the kids around me. And my son says, Dad, uh, Coach Thompson's walking this way. And I look, and he's starting to walk across the court. And I stop, and I start to wa- walk to him. And he gives me a big hug at midcourt like it's halftime. And he, go- and he just said, you do know what you're doing. 
And, and I said, well, barely. And he said, no. He said, you guys are impressive. And we were ta- we talked for a little bit, and he, he, we had the best time. And afterwards, um, we, I walked over there, and he was with you know some family members. And you know that was his grandson that he'd come see that he'd come to see play. And I'll never forget sitting with him for you know fifteen twenty minutes and having a conversation with him and his family. He was really. Um, I can't tell you what an interesting, thoughtful, um, kind person he was. Now, when he got upset, you knew it, but it was never, ever truly mean-spirited. Now, I didn't play for him, so I can only imagine what it was like um, to play for him. Um, But I, I just, you know, growing up and being a teenager and being in college in the 80s and being a Maryland guy and not liking Georgetown... I just, I didn't know what I was in for because he just couldn't have been a more pleasant, um, thoughtful human being. Uh, And, you know, in recent years, I would get, not in the last year or two, but I got occasional texts from him during shows if he was listening and he would say, you know, you were right about that or, you know, you forgot this or whatever. I mean, it wasn't a lot. It probably happened a half dozen times, um, but not in the last two years. I, I think he, he just hasn't been well. I do remember um, him uh, reaching out to me um, because I ripped Gruden. If you recall, remember when when Gruden totally threw RG3 under the bus in 2013 or 2014, his first year uh, coaching the Skins, and it was that NFL.com uh, piece. And he, he just he did something that was almost unprecedented with a head coach, you know, completely calling out his quarterback in public. And I remember saying at the time, I, I, I said, this is not what you do. This is handled privately, and I remember Coach specifically um, saying, um, uh, texting me or calling me and saying, what you said about Gruden's 100% right. You do not do that. You do not do what Gruden did. Um, that doesn't make Gruden look good, and no matter how frustrated he is with the player, that that's handled in private. But um, I really liked him. I really liked Coach. You know, if he MF'd you, it was a sign of affection always. Um, so I was very honored to have been MF'd by him, you know, once or, or, or 15 times. Made, always made me feel good. Um, he did. It was, it was at least a, a dozen, you know, a half dozen to, to a dozen times over those years. He had these sayings, you know, idioms of sort, I guess you would say, that, you know, when people have um, these go-to sayings they, that are really uh, interesting and, and are true, you know, you remember them, you know, and you repeat them yourself verbatim. I remember so uh, several of them. Um, my my favorite of his was, and I forget, you know, who he was talking about at the time. You know, could, could have been a number of, of athletes. But he always said he'd rather tame a fool than have to resurrect a corpse. And it was that it was that way of expressing that you'd rather have somebody who's crazy competitive and is hard to manage than the kid that's got talent that, you know, is, uh, it doesn't love it, you know, and isn't super competitive. He'd rather have the crazy competitor that he can then try to rein in, you know, than, than try to coach up as he called him a corpse. Um, he always had that saying, fattening frogs for snakes, 
which he, you know, was really his way of saying, you know, a lot of times snakes will start, you know, setting people up, playing possum, to use one of Tommy's favorite uh, descriptions. Um, I, I'll never forget this, too. He was talking about Jay Gruden. It was it was a Gruden thing, and Gruden was – uh, had a run of a couple of games where each week he was saying, it's my responsibility that we were so bad. It was my responsibility this. We should have done that. That's my fault. And I remember him on, on you know coming on somebody's show. It may have been Doc's show because Gruden was coaching after he had left radio. And he said the following. He said, you know, I was listening to Gruden, and he said, I'd give him some advice. My advice would be, you better not admit too much that you're not getting the job done. You're not you, you shouldn't admit too much that it's your fault because at some point they might start to believe you as in management, you know, might start to believe you. And I thought I thought wow, that's really interesting because if you take the blame too much, they'll st- and and you don't turn it around, they'll they'll say, "Well, you're the one. We're firing you because you're the one that said you weren't getting the job done." Um Ah, man, you know, he would always refer, I loved how, you know, he would sort of fatten frogs for snakes, acting like he didn't know a lot about football or some other sports when he did know a lot. And he would say, I'm just Joe the fan. Um, But I think uh, certainly many of us really um, have missed him since he left the station. Um, I think the last time I saw him was the WCAC playoffs at AU few years back. I went up and, and sat with him for a little bit and said hello. Um, but he'll be missed. He really will. Um, somebody sent me uh, this morning, and I do remember this. Um, in fact, I had forgotten about it uh, for the radio show. Somebody sent me a link on YouTube to him coming in and interrupt, I- interrupting my radio show which was the, the, the show right before his last radio show. And I was doing that show, I'm pretty sure, by myself. Tommy may have been there, but Tommy's not in the video. Wouldn't surprise me if maybe Tommy had the day off or it was vacation or something. I don't know. Or maybe Tommy was sitting across and the YouTube video just didn't pick it up. But Coach came in and interrupted me um, as I was saying, like, I was getting ready to throw it to his show, and it was going to be his last radio show, which was in 2012. It's in 2012, pretty sure. And um, there's a YouTube video of him. I don't know who took it. Maybe it was Sapienza or somebody took it. He walked in, and as I was sitting there talking about him on the air, he was obviously listening to it in the bullpen, and he walks in, and he interrupts me. Um, And I'll see if I can uh, – it got got sent to me earlier, and I'll see if I can just tweet it out, um, and I'll do that maybe later on. Uh, today, but I'll never forget that day because I had been talking about him, and he comes in, he interrupts me. We've got some laughs. I remember, he, I remember saying to him, and remember a big part of what I was saying was that he was really going to miss the forum of talk radio because he was good at it. Long form talk radio, you know, really works for those that you know um, are curious are thoughtful. Um, He was great at it. You know, he would have been so good during the last three months um, during, you know, everything that's been going on in the world. I mean, the last seven months, actually six, seven months, you know, I bet, and by the way, I would bet some of his answers and some of his reactions and some of his thoughts would have surprised um, some of you, because I think that he was not always totally predictable um, in a lot of the way he thought, but um, he'll be missed. And, 
you know, again, Doc and Brian and CJ and Al Koken, the guys that worked with them in broadcasting, and I'm talking about the broadcasting group, um, the 980 group, they really, you know, they spent every day with Coach. I, you know, I was just on the outside, but it, he was influential. I, it, it had an impact. Um, it did on, on me. I was lucky and, you know, I'm, I would, I would assume others that were in the building, you know, felt, you know, the presence, he was a larger than life, uh, figure, um, very kind, um, really smart and thoughtful and, uh, he'll be missed. Um, anyway, he was always kind to me. Rest in peace, coach. Anyway, uh, quick spot here and then we'll get to Ben Standig. Our sponsor uh, right now is Manscaped. They've got you covered to keep the hair looking nice and trimmed and feeling fully supported. Manscaped offers precision engineered tools for your family jewels. Did you hear that? All right. Uh, that's your moose asking for Manscaped. The premium lawnmower 3.0 is waterproof. It, it includes an LED light. It's made with advanced skin-safe trademark technology, which reduces nicks and cuts on your delicates. You can get this trimmer inside their Perfect Package 3.0, which also includes the Manscaped Crop Preserver. Uh, it also includes ball deodorant. You need that. And the Crop Reviver, which is a ball toning spray. Both super practical, and they smell great, too. Plus, for a limited time, when you order the Perfect Package Kit... You get two free gifts, the Shed Travel Bag and the Manscaped Anti-Chafing Boxer Briefs. The, Mansca- the Manscaped Boxer Briefs have optimal, optimal temperature control, that is, with their crop cooling technology while keeping your pride and joy supported. The waistband is also super elastic to, to reduce rubbing and chafing. You get 20% off right now and free shipping if you use the code THEATHLETIC20 at manscaped.com. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code THEATHLETIC20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code THEATHLETIC20, THEATHLETIC20. From the moose to the caboose, always use the right tools for the job. All right, Ben Standig, uh, our good friend from The Athletic, uh, joins us now. Um, and I know Ben's probably got some thoughts on John Thompson as well. Uh, ben, of course, writes and covers the football team for The Athletic. I'm a subscriber to The Athletic. I've mentioned this many times before. I urge all of you to do the same. You can do so right now for a significant discount up front. But it's totally worth it, especially with football season approaching um you know two weeks from today ben we will be talking about the opener um and right now i mean you know anything can happen in 13 days but i feel pretty comfortable that the nfl is going for this thing and that we're going to have games and we may get to december or the end of december the end of regular season and have some teams that were you know forced to forfeit a game or two but feels pretty good right now like we're heading towards an nfl season doesn't it it does. I mean, having been out at the park the last couple of weeks, uh, watching them, uh, you know, go through training camp, and you know, at, at first it's all kind of weird. You know, we're all the reporters are all standing on the sidelines in masks, and every day we walk in there, we get a temperature check, so you're constantly made, you know, reminded of, of what we're dealing with. But at the same point, it, it felt, you know, all things else considered relatively normal, and you know, there's been, you know, no real sign of any of any issue and, and like you said across the league it's largely been pretty good so yeah i mean you know kudos to everybody for you know being responsible i guess if nothing else right now in, in terms of uh avoiding you know the situations we're all supposed to be avoiding and uh you know so far so good uh you know i've given props to them 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I've, I've been in some of the reports that the NFL's put out about, you know, all of the the tests and the negative tests. And, you know, they just started hitting uh, a few weeks, you know, a week, week and a half ago. They haven't traveled yet. They haven't played another team. So right. we got a long way to go. But um, I feel like, you know, as we approach football season, and you and I are huge basketball fans, and I know you've been watching the NBA as well, and I'm actually really into it. And thankfully, they started to play these games again. I actually think the platform for them playing games is much better than one in which they're not. Um, but uh, football season is, you know, the season, the sports part of the calendar where if it, you know, if you don't have games, things really won't seem normal. Um, so, uh, you know, I think we're heading um, in that direction. I do want to get your thoughts on Georgetown, and we'll do that on John Thompson um, here in a little bit. But catch everybody up to speed. I'll be honest with you, over the weekend I was paying attention here and there. The team has that that practice today at, at FedEx Field, which was postponed last week um, uh, because of the events uh, in Wisconsin. Um, you c- catch everybody up to speed. We know that Alex Smith was cleared. What were the big stories from over the weekend? Oh, boy. Uh, you know, it's funny. Every day feels like a year in this whole environment. I'm trying to remember what the heck happened yesterday. Uh, <laughs> what I, happened yesterday. Um, you know, I, I think uh, so for Saturday's – or sorry, Sunday's practice was effectively the most – it wasn't much different than a few other ones, but it was the last, like, full-blown – practice it appears that we'll see and uh you know i think he saw you know some of the strengths and weaknesses of this group the defensive line you know has just been collectively the best part of of camp so far chase young obviously missed some games early on with the hip injury he had a tackle on adrian peterson yesterday kind of bolting across the line of scrimmage from the left from the left end spot to get peterson running up the middle just completely engulfed him i mean you don't really see adrian peterson get taken down by one defensive lineman very often, and, and, and you know that just one play was a sort of a, a quick snapshot of what what could be going on here with Chase Young this year. And meanwhile, Montez Sweat's been a, in, in the backfield plenty. Deron Payne has looked very impressive. Um, John Allen did hurt his knee yesterday. We, we don't have any indications. Or you know, yeah, yesterday we don't have any indication what the deal with that is. He seemed to be not too much pain, but we'll see what we'll see about that. But beyond that, I mean, the defensive line has looked great, which is obviously. It's one thing to say they'll look good, and also it's worth noting they're going up against the subpar offensive line that has big questions on the left side right now. But they did their part; they looked impressive. Um, that to me, you know, really, uh, really, really stood out. And then, um, you know, from there, you know, there's some individual players here and there. The Troy Apke story, like we were all reporters were joking yesterday, that Troy Apke was probably the MVP of camp. What what would the Vegas odds have been on that? Like off the board, like not even you couldn't even make that bet. <laughs> it was so. So bizarre, but he, you know, he's been a factor. He's, he's been a hitter out there. You know, he's basically started, I think, almost every single uh, practice at free safety when we all thought there would be a, a, a more of a legit competition with Sean Davis. That hasn't happened uh, at, at all. Um, on the offensive side, you know, look, I mean, Dwayne Haskins is, to my eye, still up and down. He has had some throws that you're like, that is exactly why he was a first round pick. Strong arm, accurate, sharp. You know where it needs to go. He had a he threw a ball to I want to say it was Dontrell Inman yesterday in the back of the end zone. I thought it was high when he threw it, and it turned out to be just an absolutely perfect dart to a tall receiver over smaller corners in the back of the end zone. But then there are other throws that you're just like, wow, where was that going? What you know, he think he still seems to me have his issues with progression where the ball is sort of hanging in his 
hanging his hand a bit much, even when, you know, these, these rushers are not going to hit him. Uh, you know, they're not, you know, they're running at him, but not like crazy. And I, so I still have questions. So it's definitely a Jekyll Hyde situation. We all also get he doesn't have a ton of weapons, proven weapons at least. So, you know, I, I think the things to me are still up in the air with him, but at least, you know, we're seeing some, some good, some good things. I mean, I think those are some of the highlights. I mean, you mentioned Alex Smith. On the day we weren't there Saturday, he did 11 on 11 non-contact, but that was another another step. So you know that that's going to be a major story this week, obviously, with the 53-man roster closing in. Does he? You know what? What? What do they do there? But uh, but yeah, I, I think those are probably some of the bigger stories that come out over the last uh, few days and kind of really just all camp. I mean, it was another big headline on Saturday when he took the 11-on-11 work. And, you know, it's been um, a headline every single time he's taken an additional step towards playing again. Did this one get him a lot closer to playing? Like, are you believing it any more than you did prior to Saturday? Or is the fact that this this was no pads, um, no contact, um, that the real indication will be if he's participating in 11-on-11 and dropping back with the ability to either, you know, be contacted or even have somebody roll up on him? Yeah, look, I mean, you and I have talked about this on and off, I know. <laughs> off air, and it's just like, I don't, in my mind, I still cannot comprehend how, after everything we saw in the documentary and just everything else, how he gets cleared to take contact. I just, I, I don't know how to rationalize it, but here we are. Every day he takes more and more steps. Obviously, you would hope to think that the team is not looking to put it in harm's way, and, you know, it, they're going to have to get to a point where they think he can do it. So I, I've given up doubting that he can do it. I just still question whether it happens. I mean, if I have to guess right now, my my thought would be he makes the 53, but they put him on IR, you know, after the first day, which means, what, he can come back in six weeks, I think. Um, do that, then give, gives it more more time versus putting him on IR before the season, and then he's, you know, out. So uh, that would be my guess right now, and to buy some more time. I... I I hate being this like uncertain, but this is beyond my comprehension because it's all about a medical stuff. So it is just wildly impressive that he's even keeps getting this close, and the fact that they keep letting him move forward. So it's positive, but I I, I remain skeptical solely based on my incredibly non-medical brain that just looks at it and thinks, "How on earth is this possible?" Um. So real quickly on a couple of the things, I agree with you. Um. I'm. You know, every time I see him take, you know, a step, even if the step on Saturday was a small step, um, I start to to wonder, could I have just completely misplayed this or not misplayed it, but misinterpreted um, all of this. But I, I've, I haven't seen anything yet to change my mind, my mind being that I'd be very surprised if he ever took a legitimate snap in a real game um, uh, for this football team anyway. Um, let's go back to defensively. What was the John Allen injury? It appears to not be of concern, but what was the injury? Yeah, uh, just on one play, we look over. He's on the ground, uh, you know, grabbing at his leg. But they later, you know, he needed some help off the field. They later put a, you know, some sort of a brace, look back on his knee. Um, you know, he was sitting, he sat on the sidelines though for the most of the rest of practice. He did stand with his teammates at some point. He seemed to be smiling a little bit. You know, didn't seem like he was, you know, riot like that. And you know, sometimes the injuries misleading at first, but you know, it looked to be okay. Uh, Deron Payne seemed to say that he's 
talked to Alan afterwards and thought that things were okay. So, you know, I don't know if it's a, a day-to-day thing. Maybe they hold him out until the opener. I don't know. I literally have no idea. So we'll have to just see Rivera pretty tight with the medical updates, especially at this point in the year when he doesn't really have to say anything. So we'll see about that. But, it, it, you know, it, it, it appeared to be nothing uh, overly serious, but how long he's actually out, you know, to be determined. And obviously, you know, it's worth noting they have very good depth on the line, but they already did lose Caleb Brantley. Uh, he, you know, he opted out with, right. because of the COVID circumstance. So, in terms of defensive tackles, like you know, they they don't really have an all, all, their, their extra depth in my brain is more on the end. Um, you know, maybe Ryan B could fill in, but you're like, you know, like they don't that that I, I don't they don't have a ton of depth there. But the four they have, him, Ionitis, Payne, uh, and Settle, are very good. So you know, you don't need depth beyond that, but only in the case of uh, if he's out for a while. And you mentioned Chase Young, um, Deron Payne, and I'm looking for the quote, so I'll paraphrase, I can't find it, but he basically said something like, you know, he's looking forward to Chase Young tearing up this league as much as anybody is. So I'm assuming that Young, in his limited participation, because he was slowed to start, or slow to start, um, has impressed all of the veteran players. Yeah, for, for, for sure. You know, it's funny, like, where we're out there watching these things, you know, I'm so used to being able to, you know, pause, rewind on TV, and then you forget, oh, wait, this is real life. I can't actually do that. So, you know, we don't, you can't see everything. If you want to watch different positions, you can't always watch everything. But his, but when you watch him and when the, you know, if you're watching the ball and the, and the amount of time, you know, he's really just sort of standing out. Um, you know, he has some really, some, some splash plays, you know, even in, like, you know, some one-on-one drills. Uh, working against alignment, you could just see all the reasons why people are incredibly excited about what he what he can do. And and uh, you know, look, it, it is you know that's been my, the word I've used throughout this offseason has been unlock. Does Chase Young help unlock everybody on that line the way that uh, you know Bosa did last year with the Niners in a similar situation where San Francisco had a bunch of guys who were you know highly highly. Uh, First round picks, highly highly sought after players, whatever, and he helped turn that defense into a uh, real force. And, and I think that's the, the, the wonder here: Does Chase Young on one side, Sweat on the other, paint up the middle with Allen, Kerrigan, and so on? Does it just completely unlock the situation? And you know, I don't want to get over ahead of myself. Again, they're going up against an offensive line that's not so great, and you know, both of these guys were here last year, and the defense wasn't good. But it appears that the op- the upside is pretty significant and uh you know with good health and everybody does their thing it should be uh, really interesting to watch listen there are two things that could unlock everything chase young and the coaching staff i mean that that's what you're as a fan optimistic about real defensive coaches that know what they're doing and know how to maximize the talent that they have and then a total game changer um, as a pass rusher. And if you have those two things this year, it's going to be a much more competitive team. I'm curious, is Young lining up primarily as the right defensive end? So, you know, going against, say, a Jaron Christian, or it, it, you know, or are they mixing and matching with Sweat? Yeah, I feel like he's been, I think like, some mixing and matching, I feel like I've seen him on the left side a, a bunch. I believe that's where he was on the, on the Peterson uh, play. Uh so yeah, it's been mixed, uh, moving around, but I feel like he's been on the left side. If I had to tell, maybe a little bit more with sweat on the right side. Got it. Um, we are talking to Ben Standing, of course, uh, from the Athletic. Kendall Fuller's also banged up a little bit. 
Yeah, he hasn't practiced in, in, in the last few days. Rivera said yesterday, effectively, similar to what they did with James Young, that they're just taking it easy. You know, they're not trying to turn a, a, a mild injury into something that lingers longer by, by rushing him back. So they're taking their time. He hasn't really explained what the issue is. I mean, he was out there. Kendall Fuller was out there yesterday in terms of just on the on the general practice field. He wasn't working out with the team, but he was doing some work on the side. So you know, just watching him a little bit from a distance. You know, it seemed like he was in good spirits. So. You know, got to assume or guess that it's nothing terribly serious. But yeah, he's been uh, banged up. Fabian Moreau was out there yesterday. He had also missed some time. And, you know, that is a position where I feel like the corners have looked better than I think people would have thought. I think in part because Ronald Darby has looked pretty good and Jimmy Moreland has, has, has been making plays. But beyond the top four guys, including Moreau and, and Fuller, it's more questionable. Greg Stroman, I think, has had a pretty good camp, and I would put, probably put him as the fifth guy right now. But, you know, if you're going to, in today's NFL, you need, you know, probably six guys at least. Um, you know, fifth and six are kind of up in the air. So to lose a guy, potentially, like Fuller, again, not saying he's out, but just in case, you know, if this were a week one situation, you know, I still don't quite know what they have behind there. But, uh, yeah, uh, I, I think their top four gives them a puncher's chance against most opponents, even though they don't have a obvious shutdown, Fuller maybe being the best hope. But, uh, yeah, I think collectively they've looked, We are um, six days. Is it Saturday? Is cut down date to 53? Yep, 4 o'clock Saturday. All right, so I'm not going to ask you for your 53-man right now. Maybe we can debate that on Friday um, uh, if you've got time. But I do want to talk about the players that are going to be a factor, um, you know, 13 days, less than two weeks from now. And you wrote yesterday, inside Washington's training camp secret, how and where to use Antonio Gibson. How will he be used? Um, how significant a contributor will the rookie from Memphis be, uh, you know, in the opener and in the early portion of the season, do you think? I think he has a chance to be significant, but less in terms of volume and more in terms of the upside. You know, look, I mean, first of all, I talked to a bunch of people from his JUCO days, college days, NFL film people like Greg Cosell, and obviously we've been talking to the team, and, you know, by, and part the gist of the story was how to use him. Everybody's got different thoughts. Uh, Greg Cosell believes slot receiver. Others think he's a big back. Uh, you know, clearly the, the, the team is moving him all over the place in the formation, him and, J, and J.D. McKissick in particular. So I think that it, it, it's, it's looking for the ideal matchup. But one of the other themes was, look, there's a lot. You're putting a lot on this kid, and without all the practices, sort of having him you know, have to learn literally everything is maybe a bit much, and, and the idea of him being a package player I think makes a lot of sense. Now, I don't know if it's, that's exactly what the team will go by, but even Ron Rivera, though, said that when asked about, when asked about the kid's sort of mental uh, state right now, he said confused or confusing uh, because there's a lot being thrown at him. So I think, to me, you know, if you pick certain runs, certain pass patterns, to go with and figure out how to get him the ball six to ten times a game. That may not sound like a lot, but that could be, you know, arguably the second most touches on the team initially behind Adrian Peterson out of the backfield, that is. And I think that could really, you know, with the potential he has, I mean, if anybody's seen one highlight of this guy, you recognize the home run threat is all kinds of real. And I I think if you figure out how to maximize uh, the opportunities more so than maximize the touches, I think, at least initially, I think he's going to really – have have a lot of fun with him. All right, I'm going to ask you a few um, rapid-fire questions here because, again, we're less than two weeks from the opener. 
um, and I just want your best guess. Um, and you can say it's a it's a it's an educated guess, or you feel really confident. All right, one of those two: educated guess or really confident on the following questions. Are you ready? Shoot. All right. Who are the top three wide receivers? Uh, pretty confident. McLaurin, Steven Sims, Dontrell Inman. All right. So Dontrell Inman is the guy, not necessarily Antonio Gandy, uh, Gandy Golden, which, which you know, a, a guy like him could see some time on the field. Um, but you've got Inman, and you are confident about that. Uh, is the starting left tackle Jaron Christian? Uh, well, based on that sound, you can tell I'm not, I'm not very confident on this one. Um, he may be by default. I mean, Sadiq Charles is still not practicing. Uh, you know, Cornelius Lucas does not at all look like a left tackle. So based on right now, Jaron Christian is the only guy they have who I think you could even suggest would be. But I would, in my head, I'm not an expert. I have to imagine there's, I'm not saying Donald Penn specifically, but some type of Donald Penn guy out on the street who would give you a better week one chance, assuming they're in good health, than Christian. But right now, I would feel that it would be Jaron Christian just simply based on the options they have. I mean, if Sadiq Charles starts practicing today and they think he can ramp up quickly, I guess that's a different conversation. But we haven't seen him play literally once, so I can't make that claim. So you're, that's an educated guess, but it also sounds like you're leading towards they're you know, um, not confident about that either, that this is not the situation they want to be in at left tackle. Is that fair? So it's tricky. On the one hand, I would think no, but they're not. You know, they're also not doing anything about it. They they haven't gone out and signed. I mean, you know, they signed. They needed a receiver at the beginning of camp. They signed Dontrell Inman. They have brought in a couple of guys. I mean, they, they did bring in some linemen, a guy like David Steinmetz, and you know, kind of looking at him mostly as like a camp body. But you know, and I, I'm not going to project pretend I, I have a sense of whether he's worthy of the roster. But not. I mean, not as a starter. So if they, they may feel comfortable. With what they've seen out of Christian, I, I don't know that I, I would think that, but you know, especially with you know Haskins, a quarterback, or hell, even if it's, if it's Alex Smith, that's even a whole other story. So until they make a move, I'm assuming they feel comfortable with it, but I can't sit here and say that I have the same level of confidence. Next question. Who's the other starting guard other than Brandon Sheriff? I think it's going to be Wes Martin. Um, you know, he's gotten the most run. Now, obviously, uh, Wes Schweitzer has been out. He has for the most part, most of camp, he's been back the last couple of days. Uh, they've also used uh, Josh Garnett, one of these guys that they picked up uh, during camp. He was with the ones a little bit. They also were using the combination of Chase Rie and, and the rookie center Keith Ismail at the center in the guard spot. So I guess that's all possible. But Wes Martin, to me, has been out there the most. I, I think he's the safest bet to, to be out there. And, you know, I think he's looked, he's looked okay in spots. And, you know, he, I, I don't think he was bad last year either when he – when he filled in uh, for sure late in the year. So that would be be my guess. I think I'm pretty confident in that. All right. Um, Will they have a fullback in this offense? And if so, who is it? Um, They definitely won't have a traditional fullback. They don't have one on the roster. But, you know, I I, so what I think is it's more of they're going to use two back sets. But uh, this is where the Gibson thing comes into play, and maybe to some degree McKissick. Because both of them have running back, but also wide receiver skills. And like one of the points in my article was that, and this was talked about by multiple coaches, including the offensive coordinator at Memphis, is that when you have Gibson on the field, you can simultaneously line him up a receiver and force defenses to go with an extra uh, defensive back because you know, he's out there in that spot. But also... 
you can quickly move him back into the backfield, and now you, you, you want to have a, a standard front seven out there. So I think I think that mismatch mismatch aspect is a real huge component for what they want to do. And it's not and again, it's also McKissick who was originally a receiver, now who plays back and plays in the running back. I, I think this is a big deal. So I don't think a fullback per se. Obviously, they they'll probably keep three tight ends, and you could see one of them in in that spot that they use different formations. But I think it's a lot of two back sets trying to confuse the defense as to what's actually it's going to be a runner pass. Through the first three weeks of the season, who leads in tight end snaps? Uh, pretty confident, Logan Thomas. I mean, he's the only one that I feel confident about right now. He's looked, you know, he's been interesting in the red zone threat the last couple of uh, few days with, with Dwayne Haskins and. You know, again, I don't know if he's really the starting tight end in this league. Based on what he's done to date, the answer would definitely be no. But, you know, based on what's here, it doesn't – I mean, Marcus Ball has been running a lot with the twos and, you know, gotten some work with the starters, I guess. But, you know, I, I just still struggle to imagine that this guy who was, you know, an undrafted player a couple of years ago didn't play last year because of an injury. Uh, you know, he's legitimately battling Logan Thomas for real snaps. Uh, I guess Jeremy Sprinkle is the third guy, but honestly, I don't. I I have remained skeptical he even makes the team. My only counter, though, to myself is, well, then who else is? You've got Richard Rogers, Hale Henkes. I, I don't necessarily know that either one of those guys has done uh, too much in camp. And at least Sprinkle is a sort of been there, done that. Rivera has said that they're you know kind of probably lean towards vets um, in some of these choices. And you know, not that I mean, Richard Rogers is older than Sprinkle, but you know, Sprinkle's been playing. He's basically never misses any game. So there's logic to keeping him as the third guy, but even though I, I could easily see him being replaced, they thought they had somebody a little bit better. Uh, is Troy Apke going to be the other starting safety opposite Landon Collins? Boy, I, like based on what we've seen in practice, I should say absolutely confident yes. I, I'm only going to hedge slightly because, you know, Sean Davis is the one with far more experience, but. Based on what we see in practice, there's no reason to think it won't be Apke. He's the one running with the one constantly, and like I said, he's been, you know, he's been he's been noticeable. He's had some good hits out there, and um, you know, he's obviously you know very athletic. He's got big time speed, and this defense definitely lacked speed last year. If nothing else, I think that's a a, a, a big consideration. So, I, yeah, I, I guess I'm. I mean, I really I can't almost believe I'm saying this, but yeah, I guess I'm pretty confident that Troy Apke. Is the starting safety first defensive possession against the Eagles? Who are the three linebackers? John Bostick, Kevin Pierre Lewis, and I. I'm going to say Thomas Davis, almost out of seniority. It does feel like Cole Holcomb, and I think we probably need to ask more questions. Doesn't I've not really heard nearly as much about him in this camp as we would have thought. I mean, he was a guy obviously last year, you know, as a rookie, you know, uh, tied with, with Bostick second in tackles. You know, we, we talked tons about his speed and ability, but it, it doesn't. It feels like he's maybe slid behind those other guys a bit. Also, Sean Dion Hamilton has looked pretty pretty solid in spots, especially you know in, in run situations. But you know, Thomas Davis hasn't been out there a lot so far. But I I, I would imagine he's the guy to go with uh, right now as the third guy, just by almost default, I guess. Um. I'll ask you, if we reconnect later in the week, um, I'll get an update on this, but we're six days from cut down or five days from cut down. Give me a surprise cut or two. Um, 
So I don't know if it's a surprise, but I think Trey Quinn is definitely on the edge. I mean, I don't know if they're keeping five or six receivers. If they're keeping five, boy, I've been all this time kind of leaning towards Isaiah Wright, the undrafted free agent out of Temple, because largely because the special time kind of leaning towards Isaiah Wright, the undrafted free agent out of Temple, because largely because the special teams coach Nate Kayser months ago cited him as somebody that he really liked, and so many of these final decisions come down to special teams. So that was one thought I had. But, you know, Cam Sims is still in the mix. If you keep six, is it Cam Sims? Is it Quinn? I, I, I think that's an interesting spot, interesting in the sense of, like, you know, what happens. not so much interesting in terms of a ton of excitement. I think Cam Sims has looked really good in camp again, by the way. He would be my lean over Quinn, but Quinn's also been a guy in their punt return situation. So that's a tough call there. I, I'll give you one. I'm not remotely saying I'm putting this in my 53, but it's something I'm at least considering. Uh, DeShazer Everett, and the reason I say that is, so they draft Cameron Curl in the seventh round. Typically, teams want to keep their own draft picks. Now, Rivera did say yesterday that the veterans are going to have an edge over the young players when it comes to final decisions, so that would be going against, you know, that means going with Everett. But at the same time, I noticed that yesterday they had uh, Curl in the punt protect situation, which is also where uh, they typically have have Everett, and uh, you know, Everett's main value was on special teams. I think if they think that they can get away with somebody else in some of these spots, maybe that opens up a place, because if you, if, you, if, you, if Curl's your fourth safety, he's also a guy that can play corner, which is why I, I do think they could keep five safeties, that maybe that opens up a spot to give you that whatever else you want, the sixth receiver, uh, a ninth defensive lineman, whatever it may be, so I'm not saying I'm picking it. There's definitely logical reasons to keep Everett, primarily special teams, but I keeping I'm keeping an eye out for that one. Last one, um, Ron Rivera, I guess um, referenced, implied, or stated that he's nearing um, a decision on the starting quarterback uh, and naming a starting quarterback. Um, before you give me your, you know, educated guess versus extremely confident prediction, um, is that going to happen this, you know, will he do that this week or will he wait till Monday? Or do you think there's a sense that they'll know out there, but they'll keep it, you know, as a competitive advantage as, as long as they can leading up to Philadelphia? What do you think his timeline on that is? <laughs> the competitive advantage stuff is definitely something that they're all talking about. We all kind of keep making jokes about it. Like we're not allowed to take video or pictures after the first, like, say, 10 minutes of practice. Uh, the team, though, constantly shoots stuff out, and they'll tweet out plays that we're, we're not allowed to because of competitive advantages. So I, 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 anything that gives them a, a potential of that competitive advantage, I definitely is something I think that they will uh, they will consider. But as far as, um, you know, look, I, I don't know how it is in Haskins. I mean, between him and Kyle Allen, there has been no overt competition. It's been pretty much Haskins running with the ones almost exclusively, as we just discussed. Alex Smith, to me, is a completely separate issue. Uh, so I don't even know how to factor that in. Uh, you know, but until, until he's cleared to play, how can we consider him, uh, cleared for contact, how can we consider him in the mix? So I, I would be very surprised if the answer is ultimately it's not Dwayne Haskins. So I guess I'm pretty confident that the answer is Haskins is the starting quarterback, again, unless there's some major dramatic revelation or, or change with the with the Alex Smith situation, and even then, I would have to still believe that Dwayne Haskins is the uh, starter whenever Rivera makes that announcement. 
All right, I want to get your thoughts on John Thompson passing away. You covered the program. You got to know him a little bit. You got to know people in the program a little bit, and we'll do that with Ben Standig right after this. All right, we're talking to Ben Standig, of course, from The Athletic. Uh, We've covered a lot of uh, Washington football team stuff, and maybe we'll catch up with Ben right before the final cutdown date on Friday if he's got time. Um, But you spent time covering Georgetown. Um, You got to know a lot of people in the program. You had conversations with Big John uh, in the past. He passed away, and I spent some time talking about it at the beginning of the show um, here today. But what were your uh, memories of being around the program and around um, the king of that program, uh, John Thompson Jr.? Yeah, I mean, look, I grew up a kid in this area, and if I have any one weird sports fandom thing, it was – I rooted for Georgetown and Maryland growing up. I mean, I you know they were both local teams, and obviously they never played each other, so it was never really an issue. But uh, so you know, I was there. And I'm old enough to to remember the Patrick Ewing playing era and, and what that meant, and, and so therefore John Thompson Jr. was you know the the epitome of an icon. And to then be older and to be around the program and to be around him, I mean, it literally felt like you're you know you're talking to like a, a you know some sort of like statue or something on you know, uh, on uh, you know that that come to life, and literally there is a statue of him inside the Thompson Center. Incredibly intimidating. He's a huge man. It was a huge man. Uh, big. He you know didn't was not afraid to speak his mind on all kinds of subjects. He would be in these press conferences when his son John John Thompson III was a coach, and like often like just completely random. He would just like chime in from the back of the room, and um, it was always a quite a spectacle, especially as long as you were not on the reason why he was chiming in. And, um, it was fascinating for sure. The, uh, he looked obviously as a coach, he was an, an incredible winner. Those Georgetown teams, I mean, Kevin, I mean, you remember, it wasn't just that they won games. People do that. They created, uh, they, they were an era. They were one of the all, when you, when you write the history of college basketball, that Georgetown era, is, is high up there, yep. the, the style of play, but also just the level of intimidation, the, the whole Hoya paranoia thing. And obviously for the, for the black community, you know, with so much, that program meant so much because, you know, he was the first coach, uh, right, the first uh, black head coach to win uh, a, a national title. Uh, you know, he, he, he did so much for the community, both in terms of just, uh, you know, race relations, but also on, on the academic side. And then, of course, well, he coached Patrick Ewing, Allen Iverson, Dikembe Mutombo, Alonzo Mourning, not to mention countless other, you know, all-American types or just guys who are huge legends around there. Um, and I guess just for me personally, so like I said, just being around, you know, I mean, it was very intimidating early on to even, like, dare go speak to him. But over time, I, I never quite knew why. He was always super nice to me. Uh, you know, I saw him a couple of times earlier this year. Once was after Kobe Bryant passed. He, he came out to give some remarks, and... Uh, about that and you know i i figured out enough how to deal with him first off don't ask a question you don't know the answer to and secondly don't ask anything stupid because he was going to throw it right back in your face and too many people who just come in there and didn't know what was happening would would get would get the you know the the wrong end of that stick when when he would come back at them but ultimately for me it was he was he was he was uh you know for me nice and 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 uh you know it was an amazing, I don't want to say life accomplishment, but to I, I check off a big a big check for me that this guy seemed to give a crap about my existence when he saw me. It wasn't 
just an unbelievable feeling as a kid who grew up rooting for this team and knowing that it is literal definition of a, of a living legend. Uh, you know, and it's so sad that unfortunately, uh, you know, he passed away. Yeah, you know, you and I are a little bit different. I mean, we're both from here and, and are huge basketball fans. Um, I was so much um, sort of born and raised as a Maryland, you know, Maryland family and rooting for Maryland and rooting for Maryland during the lefty years into the, you know, into the Gary years. Um, and Georgetown, you just, if you were super hardcore either way, it was really hard to root for the other. It was this, it was a rivalry, even though they didn't play each other. Um, so my, and I mentioned this earlier, but my, you know, my impressions of Georgetown, you know, before I got into broadcasting and before I got the job at 980 and got to know coach was I hated Georgetown. You know, I couldn't stand Georgetown. I couldn't stand the, the it, but it was a lot of jealousy and a lot of envy sort of co- combined together. Remember, Maryland was the heavyweight and Georgetown took that mantle in the 80s and, you know, and stopped playing Maryland. And there was that, that whole thing. But um, as I mentioned earlier in the show, uh, getting to work with him for many years at the station, it was just such such a pleasure and such um, such a great experience. And you know, I I I, I loved you know as you said, um, you know, I can't tell you, and I mentioned it earlier, how many times I walked out of, out of the studio after Tom and I did the sports fix from twelve to two, and he and Doc and 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 and. Al to start with, and then it was he, Doc, Doc, and Brian would be walking into the studio. But how many times, like Doc would come in, he would always come in early to the studio and start setting up shop. Usually, pretty disruptive in studio um, as we were still doing the show. And uh, and Brian, you know, was hanging out in the bullpen, and then he'd walk in, and then Coach, I, I, at least no less than two dozen times over the years, he's standing out there waiting for me, and I walk out, and I got my headphones, and I got my notes motherfucker what you said you and then we would get into it right there in the bullpen and then but he always like like I remember doc early on saying to me he must you know he you're getting to him one way or the other you're getting to him which is a good thing but we ended up having so many conversations on so many days where he'd be late walking into the studio to be on the air doc and and brian would open it up and then he'd walk in at 210 or whatever after arguing with me or debating something in the bullpen but god i enjoyed being around him he was so smart um, he was so bigger than life, like as you as you described. There was just there was a charisma about him as well. I mean, it was hard in his presence not to be attracted to him and not to like him. Um, and uh, a, a giant, a giant in this city, a giant in the sports world. You know, passed away last night. He really did. Um, and you know, you got to witness essentially him in his godfather role, you know, in the boss role, you know, with a couple of underbosses, you know, and a couple of captains running around. But when he was in some of those press conferences following a game or a practice and he would speak up, everybody stopped and listened, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, without being so over the top, it was like the voice of God. Yeah. I mean, he, I mean, one of the things, I mean, look, obviously this is not the day to you know, offer any type of critique, but one of the things you know, people had often said for Georgetown was, you know, even when his son was the coach, that John's, Big John's presence you know, wasn't always helpful because 
you know, obviously he, when he spoke up, even his son, who then the current head coach, seemed to be deferential on, on some level at times. And obviously everybody around there was. And, you know, the fact that they then hired Patrick Ewing, you know, despite, you know, no head coaching experience, this, that, and the other, to be the coach, everybody just said, well, of course they did, because, you know, this is what surely Big John would want and, and, and so on. But it is, look, he is, you know, we talk about programs, you know, who's the best coach in some programs or program builders. Like, Georgetown was a nothing program. He literally took this thing and turned it, I mean, everything else about Georgetown, the athletic department is, they actually have a good soccer team now, but by and large, they're a Patriot League type program. And this basketball thing is ginormous. Obviously, the success hasn't been there the last few years, and, and that's a whole other story, but, you know, it is one of the big college basketball programs in the country that when you put them on television, I don't know about ratings per se, but you can still get the average person like, oh, Georgetown's playing. And that's all from that era. Uh, and, uh, look, I mean, you know, like I said, the history of college basketball, it's always funny, the two games that they, that they, they, they rerun Georgetown the most, for them both ended in losses. They lose to North Carolina in the 82 title when some random freshman named Michael Jordan hits the go-ahead shot at the buzzer and then the infamous play with Fred Brown throwing the ball away to Worthy. Uh, and then you have two year, uh, uh, three years later, Villanova, with the literal perfect game, beats Georgetown. In, and, you know, what can you, know, what can you say uh, about that? But they also won a title in between. Uh, Big John and Fred got a hug uh, together out of that one. And, um, like I said, you can't write the history of college basketball. By the way, he's an NBA player, you know, great friends with Bill Russell from their days together with the Celtics. You know, so much... Uh, so much uh, the, the history of basketball flows through John Thompson Jr. in so many ways, and you know it's definitely a big loss uh, for sure. No doubt. Um, yeah, it, the, the reaction coming in, um, you know, all morning long, you know, is from every uh, corner of the world. I mean, it's political, it's sports, it's pop culture, it's everything um this was uh this was a very important person in the history of sports and beyond and to your point you cannot you know do a ken burns college basketball documentary without having a whole you know night uh, or certainly uh, a massive you know hour on what georgetown basketball um, meant to the sport in the 80s and how it became this sort of counterculture, anti-establishment, you know, brand, you know, um, and very popular, obviously, with young black America, but it was massively crossover as well, appeal, because, you know, there were there were so many people that, you know, bought those starter Georgetown jackets and had the, Georgetown at one point sold more apparel than any college football team, let alone all college basketball teams there for a couple of year period. That shows um, how significant they were um, on sort of the pop culture landscape as well. Um, Last thing before you run, because Ben is getting ready to head into FedEx Field for the team's practice. I I think you've been watching the NBA playoffs like I have. Um, this, This duel between Jamal Murray... For Denver, for those of you who are not watching, and Donovan Mitchell for Utah um, is one of the great 
uh, battles, scoring battles, you know, mano a mano that I think we've ever seen in the postseason. I don't know if I'm exaggerating that. I don't think I am. You know, Jamal Murray here in this in the six games is averaging 34 points per game, but in the last three, he's gone for 50, 42, and 50 in those games. Donovan Mitchell in the same series um, at this point uh, has also scored 50-plus on two different occasions. He's averaging 38.7 in the series. He's got a game of 57, a game of 51, and a game of 44. Not in the history of the NBA postseason has there ever been a series at any point in the postseason where there have been four 50-point-plus games in a series, and it's been done in this one with just two players. It's been amazing. I don't know if you've been staying up to watch it, but where did Jamal Murray – I mean, I knew Jamal Murray was good. Don't get me wrong. Had no idea that he had this kind of ability to score. I'm with you. This is sort of like the the second-tier series where, like you – know, I mean, like the two guys you just said, both very good all-star level players, but they're not – the, you know the, the true NBA headliners, but don't tell that to anybody who's actually watching the series. Uh, I caught some of the game yesterday with Murray, and there were a couple of stretches I saw where you can't name another player in the league <laughs> who was who could have scored on a better run than that oh, guy yeah, was. Yeah. Oh my god! He yeah, even, he, he even had like one stretch early in the game where he couldn't believe the runner that he had. I think to go in, he had, he had a look on his face like, "Hell yeah, look at that! I, I got I got game." Um, it, it is pretty fascinating to to watch. I, I, you know, for Murray in particular, I feel like Mitchell's got a pretty good, big reputation already. I feel like with Murray, especially if they can come back and win this series, what is it now, 3-3, right, um, after being down 3-1, if he can come back and win this series, especially at this clip, I mean, his, his level goes way up in terms of, uh, you know, where he fits into this league, and it, it's, been, it's been fascinating. I mean, I don't know what the numbers say. I have to imagine – Scoring is way up in the bubble. I would think. I mean, because I keep. I mean, it seems he is like the it. only one. It seems like. Yeah, it. I mean, he, like I mean, we already you know we had the Doncic game a few a few games ago, and we've had some other incredibly high scoring games. I mean, Lillard has had some insane ones um, with Portland. So yeah, it feels like uh, I'm, I'm taking a little bit of a uh, you know I'm, I'm downgrading some of these scoring numbers because it feels like the defense is incredibly light, but at the same point, you still got to make the plays and make the shots, and he's clearly. Uh, is doing that. I mean, this for me, tomorrow night, a seventh game, the, the only game seven in this first round um, of the uh, of the postseason. It becomes must-watch. I'm, I'm telling you, like, for those that, that are sort of not nodding off right now, wake up. Because if you – it's so different looking to watch the way Jamal Murray gets buckets. Like, he'll come down and he'll stop and transition like he did, did last night and knock down a 30-footer. He dominates the ball a lot, is able to shake free, back up, step back threes. He was 9 for 12 from behind the arc last night. 9 for 12. That's ridiculous. Um, in the last – in in, in the um, – Last couple of games where he's really uh, lit it up, um, I'm pulling up the numbers right now because it's some sort of ridiculous uh, shooting percentage. His field goal percentage in the last three games, all right, is 65%. His overall three-point percentage, he's made 13, 22 of 23, 22 of 35 from behind the arc. 
I mean, he has been incredible, and Donovan Mitchell's been great. Um, for me, um, the story of the postseason, and I know I'm partial here because he's my favorite player in the league, but it is the continued show that Kawhi Leonard puts on in the postseason. He's a different player in the postseason. Yesterday, that game against the Mavericks got to within six after the Clippers were up 23. It's a six-point lead um, as they head to you know late into the game. Uh, here comes Kawhi Leonard scoring eight of their next ten. Game over. He finishes with 33 points, 14 rebounds, seven assists, and five steals. He is just... To me, the guy in the league, Ben, that you win with more than anybody else. Yeah, uh, the, the Kawhi thing. Uh, did you see Spencer Dinwiddie's uh, comment yesterday? It was like a, on a video thing. It, it's in my timeline. N- Nike, Nike versus New Balance, yes. Yeah, basically. It, it is such a... It, such a smart take, and I've, it's, it's things along the lines I've thought for years and said about sort of the the overpraising of certain players. But, but like, the point is that if, if the Clippers win a title, Kawhi Leonard will have led three different teams to three different titles, including two in back-to-back years, in which he's a, presumably will be the finals MVP. And if other people had done that, then forget forget the GOAT debate. There is no debate. That, that is like a craziness. Um, you know, Jordan, as great as he was, obviously was doing it with the same people, more or less, you know, at least with Pippen and Phil Jackson. So this is like an insane possibility that we are witnessing here. And Kawhi is, you know, we all get it. He's a robot. He has no expressions. He, you know, he, there, there is no marketing campaign, all that stuff. And he, it's just wildly impressive what he does over and over again. I mean, if we get to them against the Lakers, you know, it's just going to be a fascinating series with the, with the Clippers having all these sort of interchangeable wings and the Clippers – and the Clippers and the Lakers having the size of Anthony Davis and, and you know with LeBron, it really will be a, a fun one if we get to that point. It, it'll be it'll be crazy. He's 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 a great clutch performer too. But the point that you were referring to, Spencer did what did what he said. Essentially, if he were a Nike guy instead of this you know New Balance NBA guy, which very few are, that there'd be no no conversation right now. Um, about you know, he'd be so much more in the conversation of, uh, as the best player in the game and is one of the greatest of all time. And you're right, if he wins this title, uh, a third title with three different teams, with three different finals MVPs, he now enters that conversation. I, I mean, what? He, and, and by the way, keep in mind, two of the titles coming in year one with that new team. I mean, that's really hard in this league, especially in a right. shortened season like this one, where they're, you know, they, they didn't have the proper time, you could say, with him, by the way, having a cutback schedule to get uh, into sort, some sort of rhythm. He was brilliant yesterday, just brilliant. Right, 100%. No, Kawhi is incredible. And, um, you know, look, at the end of the day, these, these NBA, you know, <laughs> everything is crazy in the world right now, but these NBA playoffs have at least been interesting. It'll be, you know, it'll be fascinating to see there's still such a long way to go to the end and we already saw Paul George talk about you know dealing with some mental struggles sort of being in that bubble and there's a long way to go for some of these guys oh, I, think yeah. that's one advantage a guy like, I think it's one advantage a guy like Kawhi has he's such a an unemotional player that maybe that helps him deal with this stuff in ways that other people won't be able to so it's really going to be a fascinating I mean the, the teams that get to the finals if it's a long series have five to six weeks left in this bubble 
You know, they do. We're just entering the second round, the conference semifinals, so there's a long way to go. Um, thank you for doing this. Get into FedEx Field. We'll talk to you t- towards the end of the week. Yeah, man. Appreciate it. Ben Standig, everybody, from The Athletic. He uh, does such a great job covering the team. Follow him at Ben Standig on Twitter and subscribe to The Athletic. It's 40% off right now. I'm telling you, it's totally worth it, especially with football season approaching. All right, we're done for the day. Tommy will be with me tomorrow, and we'll get Tommy's thoughts on the life of John Thompson.